This episode of the Guru Viking Interviews sees the return of one of my absolute favorite guests, Glenn Mullen. Glenn is a Tibetologist, translator, and teacher of Buddhist Tantric meditation, who studied for many years in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama's very own gurus. In our first conversation way back in episode 9, we covered that fascinating period of Glenn's life and ended that episode just beginning to touch on the inner yogas of esoteric Buddhism. In this episode, we dive deeper into the completion sage practices of Tumo, Tsalong Tigli, balancing the male and female energies, clear light yoga, and we enter the realm of karma mudra, or tantric sex, as it's presented in the six yogas of Naropa. So, without further ado, Glenn Mullen. Hey, how's it going? Pretty fabulous. It's been a super, super busy month, but not as busy as you. You're Every time you're online, you're in a different country. You're like that uh, around the world in 80 days. What is his name? Michael Palin. Oh, Michael Palin. Yeah, gosh. I used to watch him when I was a little boy. He went through uh, the Himalayas in one particular episode, I remember. He even did a book on the Himalayas and on Tibet. He did. My parents have that book, actually, funnily enough. I saw it recently when I visited them. <laughs> so, Glenn, it's great to have you back on the podcast for a second time. We finished off that first conversation with a discussion of Tumo, the inner fire and first or foundational practice of the six yogas of Naropa. And I want to come back to that before we go on to look at more of those practices. You write in your book, Six Yogas of Naropa, the purpose of the inner heat doctrine is to bring the energies into the central channel, melt the drops, and give rise to the special tantric ecstasy. This bliss is then utilized in extraordinary ways. And you go on to mention one of the side effects of the practice, which I think is what it's most famous for uh, in general awareness, which is the production of heat from the body. And indeed, you write that the production of heat was used as a test of the practice. You write here, in Tibet, the culmination of a three-year retreat would often see the testing of the graduating yogis. This test was conducted by putting wet sheets over the shoulders of the naked yogis at sub-zero temperature and seeing who could dry the most sheets in a given time period. So I have a few questions about this. You know, one often hears stories about yogis in caves who keep warm through the cold winters just through the power of their tumo practice. Can you talk a bit more about this heat production side effect and its relationship to the main goal of tumo? Have you seen that testing or undergone that testing procedure? Do you test some of your own students in that way? And the third question, yogis in retreat, from what I understand, typically don't eat a lot of calories. So how can one maintain such heat production on such low calories? So there's a bundle of questions on Tumo for you. Well, yeah, there's a, a couple of issues with that, I think. One is the testing of yogis or yoginis at the end of the Losum Chusum, three, three years, three dharmas, three years, three, three, three uh, practices, as it's known in Tibetan. Attracted attention because I think in the West we tend to be more physical than spiritual as a culture. You know, for instance, with with hot, with yoga from India, people think stretching is yoga. And when you have yoga studios in around America and Europe, very often they're just they're like gymnasiums. People taking their own naps and maps uh, mats and take you know have to take shots sweaty and so on and so forth. So we tend to look at the, to be more physical and spiritual, even about spiritual things. So I think uh, that gets mentioned by 
the, the drying sheets gets mentioned by Evans Wentz in his book, Tibetan Yogas and Sacred Doctrines, that uh, was translated by the Sikkimese Lama, Lama Kazesa Dawasandob. But uh, it's not given much importance in the Tibetan tradition. It's really more done as a kind of a celebration than an actual test, I would say. It's just that everyone's finishing retreat and you come out and very often still there's a film to, footage on YouTube, which was taken in calm some years ago of like a dozen um, women who finished uh, the three-year retreat. And they all put on wet sheets and walked through the village. So it's not really that people are graded on a 1 to 20 if there were 20 people doing the retreat or something like that. I think it's more like a graduation party, you could say. And, you know, yogis have their own idea of what's fun to do. Drying wet sheets in 20 below zero weather seems to be <laughs> one of them considered to be a great party. Sort of like pin the tail on the donkey when we were kids. <laughs> more like that than anything else, I think. You know, there's other physical to demonstrate your energy control, because drawing the energy back up on Tumo is considered very important. So some, there's even, you know, some uh, retreats at the end, one even puts the tip of one's penis in a little bowl of milk and tries to draw uh, some of the milk inside of one's body by means of the energy energy change. Uh, in terms of what's the relationship between those kind of things and those kind of post uh, coming out of the three-year process celebra celebratory activities, party tricks, you could say, <laughs> and the actual practice of Tumo. The real practice of Tumo is, is to give rise to inner bliss and giving rise to inner bliss that body of bliss, that bliss is an energy, really. It's a kind of a physical bliss that acts as a support for consciousness. And it has three qualities. One is that it's very feel-good, Dewa in Tibetan, Sukha in Sanskrit. And secondly is that it's very reviving or refreshing or awakening. You know, early translations of Bodhi Enlightenment, um, rather than enlightenment, translated it as I've woken up, I'm awake. Uh, and so that has a kind of a meaning that's very refreshing, reviving or awakening. And thirdly, in times of great bliss, there's no anxiety in the mind, mitokpa in Tibetan though. So the sort of natural kind of hopping into the past and the future out of the present moment is uh, reduced greatly. So it gives an opportunity for the mind to go into very deeper, much deeper states of meditation, if you will, or direct penetration of the nature of being. Meditation here really means go beyond the sense of self and other, self, uh, here duality in Buddhism meaning beyond the sense of self and other, when one sees the integrated nature of being. So go into that state of meditation. So as you know, in the six yogas, when they talk of the six, the first tumo being the foundation, the real practice is clear light and illusory body. So that bliss, really the, the optimal vehicle, I should say, the optimal body vehicle for exploring the nature of the relationship between 
physical and spiritual, between body and mind. Body here meaning embodiment, meaning being in a physical world, being embodied. In other words, one experience not just of one's own Tarzania body but of the whole universe through the body, the body vehicle and the world, the physical world experienced thereby. So the purpose of the Tuma really is to give rise to that inner bliss that acts as a vehicle for a sort of a super consciousness you could say. That's sort of a little bit like taking, I don't know, a thousand tablets of steroids. The idea is something like that. The first Dalai Lama writes in his Kala Chakra commentary, which I translated in one of my books, Practice of Kala Chakra, on the, the, the quality of that bliss. And he points out it's a thousand times greater than sexual orgasm and acts as a, the perfect vehicle, vehicle for exploring the deeper nature of the two levels of being, in other words, somethingness and nothingness, between somethingness and nothingness. And uh, I think this comes down to something uh, often referred to as the four mudras in Tantra and Samya mudra when one, by means of generation stage yoga and visualization, invokes a kind of a great bliss. Secondly, karma mudra by means of actual engagement with a partner arouses great bliss. Uh, Mahamudra by means of meditation and the, the linking, uh, the direct experience I suppose one could say of the harmony between ultimate and relative, between the finite and the infinity, great bliss arises. And finally Dharma mudra which is sort of referring to the whole process on a higher level when one is fully stabilized in those, in any of those first three mudras. So that bliss then acts as the basis you know, for the rocket ship, if you will, in which we fly to the moon of <laughs> deeper spiritual experience. Otherwise, in Tantra said, by means of ordinary coarse consciousness, samrakpa, uh, the enlightenment path is very long slow, tedious, and can even be boring. But with great bliss, uh, never long, never tedious, and never boring. The idea is something like that, I think. What about the issue of yogis in caves without very much food using the heat-producing side effects of Tumo to survive the winters? Is that is that myth, or is that something that can happen? And how could it happen with, with so few calories? Well, that's connected to a practice known in Tibetan as chulen, and I, which means extracting the essence. The idea here is that energy is universal. Food is a kind of a coarse energy uh, source, uh, but there's infinite numbers of energy sources. And chulen is a yogic practice known as extracting the essence. And there's a very famous um, text on that, or lineage of practice on that, known as Metok Chulen, coming from the great female mystic Machik Labdun and Padampa Senge, the, the um, Shiche Sarchud lineage, as it's known in Tibetan, the pacifying and uh, cutting off, <laughs> pacifying the uh, 
pacifying the ordinariness of being and cutting off all kind of negative thought processes and uh, mundane thought processes, in which one makes little uh, flower, one collects flowers in the summer and dries them non-toxic and then mixes them with a little bit of barley flour and a few medicinal ingredients and some sort of, you could say, mystical substances <laughs> and make little pellets out of them, like the size of rabbit droppings, perhaps, or <laughs> sheep droppings, and just eats a half a dozen of those each day. And they're basically a kind of a just-add-water kind of food, you could say, <laughs> that they were developing for astronauts going to the moon. And... Uh, after making those pellets, one does a meditation using white yogini, where energy is sent and collects all the universal energy, quintessential nutrient, you could call it, and draws it back into the, into the little pills. And then when one eats those, one imagines that each one is like a complete American Thanksgiving turkey dinner, sort of, unless you're vegan, in which case the turkey is tofu and... <laughs> <laughs> the uh, butter uh, inside the turkey is, I don't know, canola oil or something like that. So uh, the use of metok, of, of chulen in one of its sources is very common. And uh, that was practiced quite a bit in Darmstadt. In fact, one of my own teachers, Geshe Wangdu was his name, did uh, three years with no, no food whatsoever during his uh, six yogas retreat, just doing the metok chulen, just using these little flower essence pills. And, you know, a year's supply, making a year's supply of them is basically a couple of kilos of barley, a little bit of butter, and a, a few natural Tibetan medicinal ingredients, when, which you could, in Tibet, pick up from the local Tibetan doctor friend for, I don't know, 10 bucks or something like that, the equivalent, I suppose, would make you enough of those to last a whole year, and the next year you would remake them again. So very often in Galupa, for instance, when I was doing my first retreat, uh, my, the Lama who the, uh, whom the Dalai Lama had appointed to uh, act as uh, instructor or teacher for us Western people, Geshe Darge, he said in Tibet, we, before we put people into solitary retreats, they should have some degree of Tumo expertise so they won't freeze to death and they should be somewhat accomplished in Chulen, the practice of extracting the essence. Now, another kind of Chulen is called Dogi Chulen, where you just take a stone and you put it into a glass of water. And this is done with the Amitayas lineage from Milarepa, brought to Tibet by Rechungba, <coughs> and practiced by Rechungba and Milarepa during their retreats on the, using Tumo for healing and well and wellness. And the the rock, the little stone, goes into a glass of water and you do meditation and concentration and mantra where the rock sends out lights, fills the universe, and draws back into it quintessential nutrient. And then this releases this nutrient into the water, and then you just drink the water. So this, uh, you could say, is, is a more pure form than the metok chulem, where I actually having barley flour and a whole bunch of non-toxic dried flour powders mixed into little little butter balls. 
And one the first Dalai Lama did, which is kind of interesting, is called Nankazawa, taking the sky as food. So uh, you don't eat during the day, you eat during the night. And what you do to eat is you go out at night and you lie naked on your back looking up at the sky. And when the stars are at their strongest and you breathe in all of the heavens and you breathe in all of the starlight and you absorb the starlight as the foundation of your energy source. So that's considered of those three I've mentioned the most, the most pure of all the three because starlight, as everyone knows, is far superior to other forms of light. It's, it's really a, it's like a multivitamin pill in that there's lots and lots of stars and so you're getting a whole wide variety of all of your nutritional needs. So the first Dalai Lama did that and uh, he includes his references to that practice is in his commentary on how he himself did the, his Chulen retreat as Namkazawa taking the uh, sky as food. So I think when we look at nutrition, we, you know, it's almost a little bit like if we look at the, the history of armaments. In the old days, people would tie up a, a rock at the end of a stick and swirl it around and bang someone on the head with it. <laughs> and that was their idea of maximum force in battle. That was about as strong as you could get was put a big rock at the end of a stick tied with a rope or a vine and swing it around, get some momentum into it and bang a guy on the head with it and it would be a one-blow knockout takeover, won the battle. And it went from that to bullets and cannonballs and it went from that to bombs that could one bomb could knock out 20 or 30 or 40 people and it went from that to the atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb and so on. Where when one gets down to quintessential universal energies, then this can be used quite, quite differently. So I think uh, in Tibet there were two kinds of six yogas retreats. One, uh, usually in Galukpa Dalai Lama school, people do the six yoga retreat by themselves, not in groups. And so generally there was uh, historically from the time of Sankhapa, uh, an emphasis on having some competency both in uh, tumo, the inner, the inner fire, for so that you would never never suffer from cold and so on in the long winters. And secondly, because you're by yourself, there's no backup plan. There's no like you know, send Tashi to call the doctor. There's a problem. <laughs> And the other was Chulen, quintessential nutrient, where even if you're not perfect at it, you can still survive much, much longer than otherwise. And uh, so in Galupa school, that was very, very common for longer retreats and usually by solitary retreats. So I don't know, none of my lamas in Galupa ever did community three-year, four-year retreats. They always did solitary Whereas Kargyu Nyingma, often it's groups of 10 or 20 people, 30 people like that, often in a special little kind of what they call trubkong in Tibetan, meaning kind of practice building, where they, there's one of those in Wappinger Falls in New York that Kalarupa, that Kalarupache, previous Kalarupache had created for Americans to do a longer retreats. And there you make the outer wall about eight feet tall or seven feet tall so people don't look out. 
and then you have a central courtyard and all of the individual residences of those doing the retreat are facing inward toward the courtyard and you've got a central room where people can practice together. So a little bit more perhaps like in in the Zen tradition of the Zen uh, dojo where you put 20 or 30 or 40 people all in one room. The Zen dojo is even more intense in that in them everyone even sleeps in the in the dojo. You just basically go in and in Korea, in Japan, they sit facing the wall. In Korea, they sit in columns facing each other. So you sort of have columns like this with people facing toward each other, but eyes pretty well closed so they don't distract one another. And uh, no doubt, you know, in, in the Zen dojos, usually they have vegetarian food for the length of the time, so there's probably lots of farting and all that sort of stuff that you get from an overdose of veggies, but... <laughs> Nobody seems to mind too much. But Galupa generally, Dalai school generally, those long retreats are done by oneself. And so one should have some competency both in, in the uh, Tumo and in the Chulen, in the inner fire, and in taking, taking uh, extracting universal or quintessential nutrient. So am I to take from that that you're inferring that you were trained also in Chulen? before your first retreat? Well, in Dharamsala, everyone did some training in Chulen. And the one that was popular with the lamas in Dharamsala at the time was Metok Chulen, the, the flower essence pills. I think one reason for that was that a lot of, of the lamas in Dharamsala who had escaped from Tibet and who had done longer retreats were Kampa. The Kampas are from Kham. And just by quirk of fate, that happened to be the form that was most popular in, in Kham. Probably because Kham is not such high altitude as central Tibet. And, uh, you know, you have more rainy, uh, lots of trees and forests and stuff like that. So lots of flowers everywhere and whatnot. So that caught on more in central Tibet, where especially in to, to like western Tibet, where you're at, uh, you know, 14,000 feet base level plateau, the mountains go up from there, that's as low as you can get is 14 or 15,000 feet. Not many flowers and uh, so I think the uh, rocks, it's like moonscape out there. And, uh, so much more uh, Togichula and the rock essence was more popular and perhaps uh, Namkazawa. Although I never met anyone who uh, stated that they did the taking sky of food. Um, eating the sky as food essence. Uh, Metok Chulam was the one that all my lamas did when they did that retreat. Aside also, as, by the way, is a healing practice. In uh, a lot of uh, tantric yogis, every 12 years does a 21-day flower essence fast, if you will, for detoxification and healing during the first week the body exhausts all kind of nutrient that's sitting in the digestive channel and during the next week it uh, digests most of the fat tissue in the body and during the third week it looks for anything else that is cons is uh, chewable <laughs> meaning things like tumors uh, pre-cancer tumors and other internal malfunctional bod bodily phenomena 
So a lot of uh, Tibetan lamas in Kalupa every 12 years do that 21-day Jolen retreat. It was made of Jolen flower essence pills. I put the recipe for that in one of my books, by the way, the Dalai Lama's on Tantra. The second Dalai Lama uh, was his father uh, was head of the Shangpakaryu, Six Yogas of Neguma lineage, and his grandmother was the head of the, the Song branch of the Shiche school from Machik Labdun. His grandma did 44-year retreat and was very famous for her Chulan practice. So based on that lineage, he wrote a little manual on how to make the essence pills and conduct the 21-day retreat and, and that sort of thing. Which you've translated. Yeah, yeah, it's in my book, uh, The Dalai Lama's on Tantra, published by Snow Lion, presently owned by Shambhala. The main point of the of the inner heat doctrine, as you write here, is to acquire the yogic ability to induce elemental dissolutions and consciously experience the stages of that dissolution, from the visions of the mirage up to the emergence of the clear light. I'm curious, perhaps you could expand on that series of visions and that process, but I'm also curious to what extent or how much time and effort in the Tumo practice is required to get into that state of mind. Presumably, on retreat, it would be the time to do it. You'd need lots and lots of run-up at it, I imagine. Maybe not. And then, how available is that state in, say, the daily practice of somebody who's not on retreat, who's already accomplished some of that process? For, for some people, ordinary people, uh, here ordinary means uh, karmically, depending on the karmic, preparedness you have from your previous lives. <laughs> but in Tibet, you know, to practice Tantra well, you should, as all, every Tibetan text says, it should be Wangpo Rab. Uh, Wangpo means high, high, high power, high powered. And Wangpo hair really meaning a sort of karmic flow from previous lives, a kind of a baggage, karmic baggage you came into this world with, and when you opened your bag, there's actually some good stuff in there rather than just, you know, this is going to get you run over by a train at age three or something like that. Positive karmic baggage, you could say. <laughs> and so for those people, it's a little, little different, and depending on that level, how much effort is required becomes the main, uh, becomes a very um, very much a variable based on that, what you're coming into it with. And so, uh, you know, there's many examples, King Suchandra, for instance, and also Indra Bhuti, who were tantric recipients and holders over the centuries, uh, never did solitary retreats. They were running their kingdom and they couldn't do a three-year retreat or a five-year retreat because of... Uh, as uh, as is often put, they had a kingdom to run and 500 wives to keep happy. <laughs> and so they never did retreat. Instead, in terms of invoking the bliss, they, they practiced the second of those four mudras, which is the karma mudra, the sexual yoga, which is a, a kind of easy way of, of invoking bliss. It's a little bit difficult to control the bliss bliss yogically is the issue, and unless you're Wangpo Rab, people, a person coming into the world with strong positive background, 
you know, karmically background from previous uh, lives, then it's difficult to use that bliss effectively. And when the, the bliss tends to become more indulgent than yogic, one could put it like that. Sort of like the pleasure of eating the chocolate as opposed to using the energy of the chocolate as a universal nutrient, nutrient, nutrient <laughs> as a chulan substance, something like that. So retreat is not so much part of it, although, you know, I mean, it's not the determining factor. It's really where the person is at. That's why I think in Tantra, there is such a close relationship between teacher and student because each student is taught individually rather than in sutra we tend to, there's much more of just kind of a mass formula like, you know, it's like Gerber's baby food or something like that. Or it's like walking into the pharmacy with and just picking up a general tonic. Uh, and these, you know, Tibetan medicines, for instance, doctors, Dalai Lama's doctor, uh, M.G. Genla, Yeshi Dundan, uh, he would often, for a special situation, just make that medicine for you on the spot by combining any of uh, 500 different ingredients. So it's a little bit like that with Tantra and these kind of tantric practices. It's basically an issue between teacher and, and disciple or teacher and student, um, master and apprentice. And so in that way, what is best for that person is what becomes the sadhana or the daily practice of that person. And in the case of both Suchandra uh, and, uh, and uh, Indra Bhoti, neither of those kings ever did lengthy retreats and both of them accomplished enlightenment. On the other hand, there's another king, Dombi, who... Uh, when he took up the practice, couldn't accomplish it as a king, so took off to the forest and lived in the forest in meditation for 20 years, doing meditation before he accomplished his enlightenment. So there's no one-size-fits-all kind of thing, I think is the, the point often made in Tantra. That's why Guru Yoga is used as an important foundation of every Tantric practice. In Six Yogas of Naropa, uh, one of the three main preliminaries, or two main preliminaries, five main preliminaries, depending on which lineage you follow. Uh, in the main text, there's two, two, two main preliminaries, is Guru Yoga, and having that close relationship emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and I would say friendship-wise with one's guru, with one's teacher, one's lama. I think I was very lucky in that regard in that uh, my Sawi Lama was Ling Rinpoche, previous uh, Ling Rinpoche, Yungzin Ling Rinpoche. And uh, he was a very grandfatherly kind of a character. So he was, uh, he was the one who basically was Dalai Lama's main guru. So Dalai Lama had about, I don't know, 50 or 60 different teachers. So often we hear, oh, Dalai Lama was Dalai Lama's guru or Trushik Rinpoche was. They should put it like he was, those guys were uh, one of Dalai Lama's 75, 50 or 75 main gurus. But uh, Ling Rinpoche was the one with him from the beginning of his training until his enlightenment. And uh, the wonderful thing about Ling Rinpoche was he was grandfatherly. It wasn't like going to visit some, you know, hierarchical technocrat or even though he was, you know, the Gandan Tripa, officially head of Galupa, and as Dalai Lama's guru, the most trusted, I would say, 
Lama in the Tibetan world, in the Tibetan Buddhist world was central. When you went to visit him, it was like visiting your granddad. You know, he'd have a cup of tea brought in and you'd sit down and he'd ask about health and wealth and how you're doing and if everything, what were you studying and what was it. It was just like visiting granddad. It was as warm, it's as warm and intimate as visiting your own relative whom you had known since birth kind of thing. And I think that was very often the case in these kind of relationships. And then you would say, well, I'm thinking of doing this or this or this, and what do you think? And he would look at it and sort of just tailor it a little bit to suit what he thought would be more effective. And I think that's an important side of the practice and of the training. And uh, especially in Galupa school, it's, it's very hands-on, the relationship between teachers and, and students. And uh, I always have to say with Ingaluk, because every school is a little bit different uh, in that regard. And my, although I studied with masters from the, all the different, many of the different schools, uh, Nyingma, Karma Kagyu, Shemba Kagyu, and so on, uh, my main or closest teachers, my Sawe Lamas that we put in Tibetan, as they're called in Tibetan, the ones who really touch your heart, my four or five closest were Galupa masters. And that intimate side is very, very important. Now, I think with Tumo, with my own students, I always request that they do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening if they can possibly do it. Because there's many aspects to the Tumo. And one of the aspects of Tumo is that it balances the male-female drops in the body, Tigli or Bindu in Tibetan. So Salung Tigle is the, often in Tibetan they don't say Tumo that much in common chit-chat. If you go to see someone and say, what are you doing? You're, what's the main point of your retreat? They won't say Tumo, they'll say it's Salung Tigle. <laughs> uh, drops, winds and channels. <laughs> and the idea is we have these 72,000 male and 72,000 female drops, which are little like... I don't know, perhaps neurochemicals, something like that, psychoneuroimmunity forces that give rise or support particular emotional and conscious states, consciousness states. And the male side's a little bit more on the aggressive and the female side are a little bit more on the, the passive, appreciative side of things. And we want to get both our ingress aggressive and passionate sides, both in perfect harmony and balance. And so in some tantric practices like Chakra Sambhara, for instance, it said bringing the 72,000 male and 72,000 female drops into perfect balance in the five, four, five or seven chakras. In other words, by doing Tumo for just 20 minutes morning and evening, your maleness and your femaleness will be much more in balance. Your maleness meaning your ability to effectively intervene in world activities and your female side, your, your ability to experience the beauty, magic and wonder. So the female side here is often called the wisdom side. In other words, it's the experiential side, the female side. And the male side is more uh, the response to that. In other words, even in a normal relationship, uh, the wife says, now Steve, take out the garbage. 
<laughs> if you had a wife. <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. So the female is the way we referring to that aspect of consciousness by which we experience everything. And the male, how we respond and interfere or intervene or, or tailor or play with the putty of the flow of the moments of our life, something like that. So by doing two more 20 minutes morning, 20 minutes evening, I think everyone's, what would you call, sensitive female side and strong male side or an aggressive male side comes into perfect balance and it affects everything in one's life very profoundly. Uh, from just uh, one's bottle at one's presence when you sit in a room quietly is becomes very different. You're, female, you're totally, the female side has you totally open to every experience coming to you and your male side has you totally engaging in it. So the, the tantric idea is something like that. So with my students, I ask them to try to do two more for at least 15 or 20 minutes every morning, evening. Of course, in Tibetan world, they talk about Tunshin Aljar. They say four-session yoga. Doing four times a day is best because it's like, uh, I don't know, washing your dishes, washing them after every meal. <laughs> it's better than just washing twice a day. <laughs> Something like that is there. And of course, to get the higher levels of accomplishment, that depends on the individual. And uh, so one of my students here in Korea, for instance, he'd been a Zen monk for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, and uh, well, he wasn't doing that well. And so, but because he had this long history of practicing in the Zen tradition, then when I taught him Tumo, I asked him to do two-hour sessions uh, at four times a day, a minimum, for three months. And he did that and had very, very good results. But for that's not really a, a, a formula that works well for everyone. But I would say you can talk about a minimum effort, and I think the minimum is uh, 15, 20 minutes twice a day. Now, if one does it in retreat, that depends on one's relationship with one's teacher and one's teacher's analysis of one's needs. One could say something like that. And... Uh, very often one does it in connection to the tantric uh, sadhana, the daily dakya, as it's called, the generation stage practice, which acts as the format in which tumo is practiced. Now, to go back to your question about the dissolution of the elements as referred to in tumo, uh, this is talking about the deeper level of being. Uh, on a deeper level, all living beings have both a body and a mind. And the body on a most subtle level is the energy supporting consciousness. And that energy being a, in Tantra called a karmic wind, le, le Long. And this travels with us from lifetime to lifetime and is always in a state of fluctuation and remolding, as Desmond Tutu once put it, a work in progress. <laughs> And riding upon that is the mother clear light, uh, meaning the deepest level of consciousness, the eternal radiance of the soul. <laughs> now, some Buddhists don't like to use the word soul because in early Buddhist texts uh, translated from Pali, 
were usually translated from uh, by Christian missionaries, and so they translated anatma as non-self, as no soul. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of um, Buddhists even today, if they read a lot of translations from the Pali. Once you start an academic tradition, it often hangs on. It takes like a thousand years to get rid of the damn thing. So I noticed Dalai Lama likes to use the word soul quite a bit. When I was living in Darmstadt, he'd often sort of throw it in with a kind of a mischievous sort of chuckle or smile. as uh, Because uh, the, the soul here is really what we're talking about uh, in terms of a Buddhist sense of what is the soul, not the Christian sense of what is the soul. And so this sort of universal mind, you could say, if we wanted to use a Christian word for it, we could say, uh, God consciousness or Godhead or something like that. Um, so this is uh, always there with us, the background consciousness, a radiance on which the the movie screen on which uh, the movie of all of our, the drama of our lives, whether waking, sleeping or living and dying and life to life and any of the six bardos as it's called in the Yingma tradition for the doctrine of the six bardos. That's always there. And everything that rises upon it and falls upon it, it's like dreams and mirages, hallucinations. These famous 12 images are given. Now we go to that very deep level of the soul naturally in various experiences. And uh, the deep, the most natural and the immediate is when we go to sleep at night. At that time, the coarse energies, the four coarse energies dissolve and the outer energies and the signs come of the earth element dissolves. We can't move our arms very well and the, the water element dissolves. Our heartbeat uh, sort of slows, our heart slows down and the fire element, our body starts to cool and then the air element and we sort of take a deep breath and fall off to sleep. So that happens naturally in our daily life every time we, we go to sleep. So Tomo looks at that natural process and just a moment before we sleep, as we make the transition from the waking life to the dream life, we have to pass through the window of this mother clear light mind. So just uh, for an infinitesimally small moment of time in the untrained person, there's just this flash of the internal radiance of the soul. We become our eternal being, if you could. <laughs> we touch the Godhead. And uh, so the problem is with that, of course, it happens so quickly that most people don't really grow from it or, or transform from it. It's just they just go into the sleep and they go into dreams and then they toss and turn in their dreams and wake up in the morning and once more go transitioning from dream state to wake up state have to go through the window of the, the clear light mind or the eternal radiance of the soul. So when we do generation stage practice there's a, often the tantras in such as Chakrasambhara, Yamantaka, Guya Samaja the main body of the practice is known as Kusum Lamkir, taking the three kayas of the path, taking the clear light of the moment of death as the Dharmakaya of a Buddha, in other words, as Buddha mind. And then taking 
the bardo and as and dreams is kind of the sambhogakaya, the bliss body or the joy body or the body of completeness of a Buddha. And taking waking up and doing things <laughs> as rebirth and uh, as nirmanakaya, expression of the Buddha mind in the ordinary world. So when we do that in even from beginning, from the day after we receive empowerment and we start doing generation stage yoga, when we start the sadhana, we go, everything becomes emptiness. Then we sort of imagine the body that we're dying, just like at the time of death and our ability to notice the external world disappears. Well, we just notice a couple of relatives beside our deathbed, perhaps, <laughs> and then they disappear. And then we just notice our own body. And then we notice our body energies start to fade, and the earth element dissolves, and we can't move our limbs anymore. And the water element fades, and our, our uh, heart either slows drastically or even stops. And then the fire energy fades, and the body cools. And the air energy fades and uh, no more breathing, something like that. And then we go through the dissolution of the drops, the, one, the male, 72,000 male drops as, of the, as one come to, coming to the heart from the crown chakra and the 72,000 female <laughs> coming as one from the navel chakra collapsing together at the heart. And when they collapse together at the heart, uh, each of those stages, those um, seven stages, having outer and inner visions or signs, something like that. So people in the Tibetan world who you could say uh, cultivate a bedside manner, <laughs> in other words, sit with the dying and assist them in the dying, <laughs> will we'll study will specialize in that process and recognizing the physical signs and sort of communicating, talking to that person or communicating with that person as they're dying. Pointing it out to them as it's happening, you mean? Right, as it's happening and helping them stay consciously aware of the process. And then at the end of the seven stages, it's called the fourth radiance, the clear light mind arises. So at the time of death, if we can hold to that clear light mind for extended periods of time, we can sort of sort through everything in our life very neatly and tidily and straighten up all loose, <laughs> loose ends, tie all the strings of <laughs> loose ends. And it's called achieving enlightenment, the clear light of the time of death for those who didn't achieve enlightenment in their lifetime. And then, then when we practice Tumo, uh, we try to invoke that energy dissolution by means of the Tumo practice. In other words, by, by uh, uh, manipulating, if you will, the drops and energies of the body, inducing as kind of a death simulation process, you could call it something like that, a death simulation process going into very deep meditation and inducing yogically the dissolution of the four elements and the generating of the three nangwa, the three radiances of the male energies fading and the female energies failing, and then the sense of a separate self fading. And we come into clear light to mind at the time of our, while sitting on our meditation cushion. Now, 
when we talk about doing that in as as a yogic practice marpa used to say my my system of six yogas is the best tantric system in tibet at this moment because we can practice tumo during the day uh, and clear like yoga illusory body yoga on our meditation cushion then when we go to sleep at night we practice as, as a yoga of sleep and dreams in other words a yoga of clear light of the moment of sleep and dreams so when we say practicing illusory body clear light yogas in the six yoga system these being the two main practices that clear light really means reducing external uh sound background sound and isolating the sound just of the inner radiance of our the eternal radiance of the soul a little bit like i don't know a sound master in a in a studio can take a, a thousand people talking in a crowded room technique i don't know if it's physically doable but a simile would be if it's physically doable tuning into one voice and cutting out all those other background noises and that one voice becomes totally clear so the idea of tumo is that when you're seated there what do the what do these four energies support uh they support and the energy of mind they support the five senses and from all the sensory data comes all of the roaming of a as like being in a grand central station in new york with the crowding of the sensory activities and uh on the course level of consciousness even if we do deep samadhi meditation where we cut that out where that's we don't do it on the basis of bliss whereas the radiance of the prime of the eternal radiance of the soul has this great bliss quality so it's doing what we would do in samadhi except doing it on the basis of great bliss i would say that's the definition the defining characteristic of uh, highest yoga tantra practice tumo with illusory clear light yogas so i said we experience that clear light of mind at all kinds of occasions uh, when we sneeze at the tip of the sneeze there's this very sort of pleasant feeling right at the end of ah <laughs> you sort of stretch into infinity just for a moment and there's sort of a flash of pleasure from it Uh, probably from a combination of the hyperventilation comes with that great sort of explosion of energy of the air coming out and we explode at that between each thought moment but there is so minuscule like one finger snap has 67 thought moments is a kind of a buddhist mathematical <laughs> statement <laughs> so that's very very tiny and people don't even notice one thought moment let alone the gap between 67 and one finger snap and we experience at the time of sexual orgasm so of the four kinds of mudras samya mudra karma mudra mahamudra and dharma mudra samya mudra means by means of sadhana and visualization and in the, uh samya literally means commitment or practice something like that by means of our solitary practice we invoke something of that state karma mudra means by in reliance upon a practice partner giving rise to the orgasmic state 
on holding that orgasmic state, what uh, Sting used to like to call the 15-minute orgasm. <laughs> this has become quite controversial in modern time, in the last decade, I think, uh, that with uh, some lamas and some practitioners using the practice in a in seemingly in a frivolous way. But, you know, one man's, one person's success is another person's moderation, isn't it? I mean, some people, Bill Gates lives in a $30 million house. For him, that's moderation, given his wealth. And uh, other people live in a Flint, Michigan, in a $20,000 house. <laughs> so that's their idea of moderation. So it's the same in all the aspects of our life. And I think a problem we do have in our Western society in terms of karma mudra, in terms of um, utilizing sexual activity for spiritual purposes, is that Christian Christianity essentially regards sex as evil, as an act of the devil, as a sin, and so on and so forth. Uh, that uh, Adam and Eve, uh, with the fig leaves covering their genitals, were like a uh, uh, it meant that they were no longer innocent children, but uh, were having sex, and so they didn't want to show off their genitals in case anyone noticed that, uh, you know, I don't know what you would notice, but <laughs> we can use our imaginations. And I think that's a problem. Uh, so when Buddhist Tantra, Hindu Tantra first came to the West, there was sort of a titillating aspect of the, the sexual side of things and a great fascination with it and the promotion of it as a kind of, in, in response to the puritanical Christian uh, cultural mores, something like that. And, you know, that's not to say that anything, that that ladies shouldn't complain if they were felt they were done wrongly by uh, in any way by any, you know, by Sogyal or Chogyam Trump or anyone else. Everyone's responsible for their own well-being and they're responsible to speak up for their own rights or what they regard as their own rights and so forth. So it's not to defend what anyone's doing. But in Tantra, that sexual occasion is regarded as one of the main occasions when the natural radiance of the soul shines through without any effort. Now, a problem effortlessly, just like going to sleep or just like at the tip of the sneeze, but yogically it's more easily accessible than is the tip of the sneeze and as is going to sleep. The problem with going to sleep is that we're very sleepy. <laughs> and so then we often... By the time it, the clear light arises, because it's the last thing in, this, in the eight dissolutions leading up to falling into sleep, trans crossing the border into the land of sleep, and the clear light mind is the last. So often with many people, it's by the time it arises, you're already gone in your mind or of your self-discipline or your morality, if you want to do the, mo the morality of noticing the clear light of the moment of sleep. <laughs> your samya has been weakened through lack of presence, lack of conscious presence. And so it's more difficult to use. And for that reason, karma mudra is listed as one of the four. Mahamudra, of course, which I think is maybe easier for the West because it's just sitting in meditation and noticing the natural 
flow of the body and how it has a sort of natural joyful quality and the play of the universe and the sort of form is emptiness, emptiness is form sitting between those two, there, there can be a way of generating great bliss and so on and so forth. Now these four often are put in reverse order in terms of who is qualified to practice successfully. In other words, ordinary people don't get much success from, much benefit from Mahamudra or Dzogchen practice uh, because they don't have, they're not Wongpo Rab. They can't sit between form as emptiness and emptiness as form in a very stable way or a very conscious way. Once they go into deep meditation, everything just sort of flows into nothingness. So they're rather informed, drifting off in the thought process, or they're into a sort of an inner sedation state of being like a, a, a sleeping marmot, sleeping <laughs> something like that. So it's very difficult, I think, for ordinary people, meaning those who don't come with a very full trunk of good karmic forces from previous lives, to have much success, in my opinion, from Mahamudra or Dzogchen. And I've yeah. never met a Nyingma Kargyu Lama who has accomplished enlightenment through Dzogchen or Mahamudra without doing the basis of the generation stage and the uh, Tumo practices and so forth. So although in the West we mention, you know, Mahamudra Sokchen a lot as though these are like well, really we're the highest and that's what we should be practicing. Even the Dalai Lama, Dilgo Kenze, Trushik Rinpoche, the great Kala Rinpoche is the previous control, these very greatest of the great Lamas coming out of Tibet all did uh, Sutrayana training as a basis a generation stage tantra as a basis, tumo as the basis, and on the basis of those did Sogchen and Mahamudra. But I think there is a tendency in the West for us to think, you know, we're like special, I mean, I wanna, I'm the best, I should be doing the best. And the best there, not meaning what's best for you, <laughs> but what's, the, what's, what is taught once you've in the Tibetan tradition, what generally is taught once you have become stable in the under, in the other practices. Well, there is that problem in the West. Let me tease a couple of things out of there. Last stop on the balancing of the male and female energies. Then a couple of questions here on Kama Mudra from what you've said. You mentioned that the balancing of the male and female energies shows up as an effect in many many areas of life. You gave the one example of sitting there and having you sort of your presence in the room is different. What other sorts of more mundane, if you want, effects have you noticed in yourself or your students as those energies begin to come into more balance through the practice of Tumo? Well, for instance, I had one student in Philadelphia maybe 20 years ago or something like that who uh, he was a, a sort of a low-end business person, office supplier, you could say. And when he'd go to visit his customers, he would always be kind of like in a drab state of mind. <laughs> and, you know, feeling like I'm really pestering them you know, because I make a commission on what, on what they buy. So I'm, he was feeling a little uncomfortable with that. And in his communications, being a little uncomfortable. And uh, so after three months of practicing Tantra, he sort of generated a whole different feeling towards things in terms of the intervening in things, looking at what he was doing 
with after supplies as a celebratory sort of service, if you will, looking at his time with those customers, not as him being there pestering them to buy something so he'd make a commission, but as a time spent with equal individuals on the basis of Mother Claire Light Mind or Buddha Nature or the, the Godhead or whatever one wants to call it. And so within three or four months, his whole life changed. He went from, you know, having a kind of an unhappy, hating his job and being unhappy at it. And because he was unhappy of it, nobody liked to see an unhappy person walk into your room nervously trying to sell you something cause, so they'll make, you know, 50 bucks or 50 bucks or something. <laughs> and uh, it went from people not being that happy to see him that when they, he walked around, Oh, there's that really wonderful guy who, you know, comes by every month or so to chit-chat about our needs rather than about what he wants us to have. And so just by that change in focus of him, the female side, appreciating the beauty of walking into a room and seeing people sitting there doing their job and, you know, humans are beautiful when one human looks at another if you look, it doesn't matter if you're 90 years old or a three-year-old baby, or it doesn't matter if you're a, uh, a sort of synchronized left-right model-style beauty, or you're an Arnold Schwarzenegger, ugly-as-hell beauty. <laughs> but back of Notre Dame had his own sort of cuteness about him. <laughs> so I think that female side of noticing the beauty and the, the sensual fullness of each moment is part of that, I think. The completeness of the universe in that moment. And coming into the room with that air, and people would just naturally like rise and give them their attention and look forward to what to them would otherwise be a boring 15 minutes and then their day or a, a, a tedious 15, 15 minutes was suddenly became a joyful exchange of 15 minutes. So sort of radiance and appreciation and that sort of thing. So I think that's a kind of an example of how it affects our daily activities. When, uh, when, we, when we relate to ourself on the basis of our timeless mind, timeless radiance of the soul, and relate to others on that same basis. I think also at play there, of course, is in Tantra. Tantra is the crown ornament of Mahayana and the foundation of the Mahayana is the idea of seeing everything one does as beneficial to both oneself and others. Seeing oneself as basically uh, an angel of compassion, <laughs> carrying love and compassion wherever one goes. Uh, Tantra adds humor to it. Rope Laginaljara, the yoga of being a playful deity. So being uh, having love and compassion in your heart and everything you do as the sutra yana side and wisdom of emptiness, a kind of a lightness, everything's a little, a little theatrical and illusory, and coming into the Tantra generation side, which is, I'm a, I'm a playful, mischievous, tantric deity, you're a playful, mischievous, tantric deity, let's talk about office supplies. Because <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't matter what it is that someone needs, right? A man in the middle of a desert dying of thirst, a glass of water becomes more precious than a kilo of gold. And uh, someone needing office supplies is a problem. And when you get on the train and you're going to meet an important engagement, 
your train ticket is extremely important, <laughs> although it's just a little piece of paper. So that idea of the ability, you know, one of the things that Vajra represents is the five, the five sort of primordial qualities of consciousness, which are radiances of the eternal light of the soul, if you will. And one of those is the, the radiance of how all activity is joyful exchange, you know, represented by the green Buddha Amoga Siddhi in the north of the mandala and so on. Everything we do is a kind of expression of our Buddha nature. And everything everyone else does with us is an expression of their Buddha nature. So it can be something very mundane, having a cup of tea or coffee or buying a stapler <laughs> off a supply store or having your car repaired at the mechanics. If we can bring love, compassion, sort of the lightness of the emptiness, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and that's the pragnaparamita basis, the general basis, the playful deity yoga. And if on top of that we have tumal, bringing our male-female energies into balance, so our mind is up to actually keeping this into spontaneous play rather than like a, a discipline, like I have to be playful. How can I be more playful? <laughs> and you mentioned last time in our conversation that sometimes things go wrong with Tumo. Well, anything one, any human activity has a potential of something going wrong. You know, in America, 30,000 or 35,000 people die in auto accidents every day. Just driving across a city or going from one town to another on a joyride. So something which is meant to be very simple and has maximum government safety standards, like driving a car, <laughs> leads to 30,000 deaths and probably a couple of hundred thousand physical injuries every year, just in America, let alone worldwide. I once uh, mentioned, when, I was, uh, when someone asked me that question in the Theosophical Society, I meant that in America every year, some thousands of people break bones or die tripping over their pets. And I said, so if you're really, safety is your main value, you should buy a gun, go home and shoot your pet. <laughs> I said it as a joke, please don't do that. <laughs> I've seen pictures of your dog. <laughs> the reality is it doesn't matter what we do. You know, people, you know, kids will uh, eat a, um, a peanut. And it'll get stuck in their throat. It's a major cause of death for kids under a year old or something. They'll eat a piece of food which is just a little bit too big to go down and it gets stuck at the windpipe. So everything we do has a potential of not going in the right direction. So in Tantra, for that reason, we do say it's important to have a qualified teacher and one with whom to discuss things if you feel that things aren't going in the right direction. I think the reality is that if one eases into the practice in the way uh, that I do with my students, try and get them to start with, you know, 15 or 20 minute practices and then build up a little bit, then the chances of any negative side effects are very small. And uh, once or twice when I thought things with particular students weren't going well, I just told them, don't do it anymore, don't do TUMO anymore for a year, just do 
you know, bodhicitta, meditations on love, compassion, or emptiness, vipassana, insight, uh, do some tara, sadhanas, and shenrazi sadhanas, mantras, take long walks in the park, go for a holiday to Bermuda and go scuba diving. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, like with an athlete, for instance, if you pull a muscle, you have to take a rest and recuperation period. So I've never had any of my students go in any kind of long-term problematic area. Uh, so nothing as dangerous as driving a car or keeping a pet. Because uh, your pets, it's hard to go away for six months and leave them. They get mad. You probably noticed. Or do you take your dog with you? No, he stays in California. Let's talk a bit about Karma Mudra. You've already actually mentioned several things about it. And Karma Mudra, you put it in your book on the six yogas, it's there to make the quantum leap from the stage of inner heat yoga to that of the illusory body yoga. And you've talked quite a bit about that. One thing I'd like to sort of zoom in on a bit, and this is from your book, Female Buddhas, 2003 book, Female Buddhas. You write here, the Tibetans, uh, this is from the Abhyam chapter, the Tibetans seem to have shown great interest in Karma Mudra and the tradition of tantric lovemaking during the early years of Buddhism in Tibet. However, an amazing enthusiasm for monasticism and celibacy swept across Central Asia from the 11th century onward, and Karma Mudra was gradually replaced by Jhana Mudra. As a consequence, most lamas today of all schools of Tibetan Buddhism generally have only practiced Jhana Mudra. They'll have heard about Karma Mudra, but will never have practiced it. This is equally true of married lamas, although they may enjoy sex as part of their normal married life, this is for the ordinary romantic purposes, with the added biological function of producing children to act as their spiritual heirs. So I'm curious, given that as far as I know from what you've listed, most of your main teachers were monastics, were you trained in the, uh, the practice of karma mudra? And also, in your opinion, what's the state of karma mudra techniques and lineage today? Well, I think with Karma Mudra, one aspect of it is because so many of the great teachers and commentators, if they weren't monks, were writing mainly for monks and nuns. They tend to, uh, as in the second Dalai commentary, he says, well, with Karma Mudra, it's a very secret topic and I won't write about it here. He puts this in both his commentary, Six Yogas of Naropa and Six Yogas of Niguma. And he says, one can learn it from the oral tradition. So I think there is something discreet about it. In other words, it's considered to be a, a personal practice that one should not discuss much in public, largely because it can bring some negative backlash or create gossip. And when I write that in those two books, I didn't do that based on some survey that was made of 10,000 <laughs> practitioners. <laughs> it was just a kind of an opinion piece, I guess you would say, that may or may not be true. It's like how many married women have love affairs in the first, uh, outside of marriage in the first two years of their marriage. It's very hard to know. You know it's like a... If someone goes up and asks them, will they answer honestly or not? Now, within the spiritual tradition of, of, of tantric practice, everything one does in tantra is supposed to be secret. Not only the fact that karma mudra 
even the fact of one's practicing Tantra was often kept very secret in the old days. They said with Kadampa Lamas you wouldn't even know they practiced Tantra until after their death when you found a Vajra and Bell in their begging bowl or in their food bowl. They were so discreet about it. And uh, I think there is that kind of a question. But uh, I nonetheless do think that a large percentage of uh, monks and nuns do practice karma mudra at one time in their life in a kind of a controlled environment. But again, there's no objective survey on that and it, I don't think it would be possible to have an objective survey on it. Uh, in terms of Mahamudra, yes, that teaching is given quite often um, by lamas, um, I think in 1975 or something like that when I received the teaching, and it wasn't taught as some sort of titillating thing. It's like, well, as lay people, one of the things you do is you make love, so you should learn to make love in a spiritual way. Otherwise, you lose energy and you, you uh, it just basically becomes a kind of a pleasure pastime like, you know, any other pleasure pastime. But if you can make it part of your tumult practice, then it's an excellent occasion for touching the primordial clear light nature of mind. Now, it's often said another one of my lamas, and he, you know, he was a monk, when uh, he was asked about do monks and nuns practice karma mudra, he said, well, sometimes when they do the four-year retreat, if they arrive at a particular stage and can't get through that stage, uh, without the help of a partner, then the Lama may say, uh, I've got someone of the opposite sex who also is in that kind of situation. If you guys want to do six months retreat together, then that's fine. Now, it's not considered breaking a monk's vow, because in Buddhism, celibacy isn't uh, not having sex. Although, you know, this is a Western explanation of celibacy. Celibacy is really not having sex on the basis of delusion and on the, as, as, as a, a casual escapist ta tactic from the humdrum quality of everyday life. <laughs> now, there's a lot of vinya debates on that in different schools of Buddhism. But generally we say, uh, the monk vow and our any anyone's vow of celibacy is a hinayana vow. In other words, it's from our first stage of practice, not hinayana as a school of Buddhism, but our first stage of practice as vinaya. Uh, when you're a young tree, you should uh, put a fence around that tree so the goats don't eat it. <laughs> Something like that. It's superseded by the bodhisattva vow, which means the vow of universal responsibility. And all uh, Hinayana and Mahayana or bodhisattva precepts are superseded or trumped by the uh, tantric precepts. And also, uh, if karma mudra is practiced, then it's not done with one's own, one's ordinary body, nor with the body of an ordinary female, or if you're a female with the body of an ordinary male. One transforms into the primordial radiance of the clear light mind, comes out as the Sambhogakaya Buddha, 
emerges from that in the form of the mandala deity. And one's body is now the body of a god. So it's no longer an ordinary person doing such a practice. So in that way the vinaya we could say is not superseded. Now of course, you know, puritanical technocrats will say, oh, just like a rationale, like a, like a logical thought about something can be an excuse. <laughs> but it's not, it's not. It's actually the basic fact of reality. It's the truth of the being, you could say. It's God's truth. <laughs> And uh, so there is that problem, I think, that there will always be people who are literalists in terms of certain things. Like, for instance, there's a Buddhist vow not to kill. But people who take that vow not to kill will slap a mosquito. Or they'll, you know, kill cockroaches in their kitchen, put down medicine, as Tibetans call it, for the cockroaches in the kitchen. Well, that vow not to kill is always super given a condition, you know, not to kill unnecessarily, without compassion, and without some kind of really necessary reason, something like that. And you don't think of it as, in Tantra we don't think of it as killing, we think of it as uh, a kind of a transitional Buddha karma activity. If I have to, if I rent, if my house becomes infested. So, for instance, when I had a house in Atlanta, it was a wooden house. If I don't protect it from termites, it's got a very short shelf life. And then, of course, if I allow rats and cockroaches to live in it, all the neighbors will get cockroaches and rats spilling over from my house. So every vow of restraint, as they're often known, in Tibetan precepts of uh, restraint, meaning vinaya, like monk rules and celibacy and so on and so forth, are always for a particular purpose. And one should ask oneself, what is that purpose? And is the purpose relevant in a particular context? So with Karma Mudra, uh, you know, I would re revise what I wrote in those books to add a PS that or at, at a footnote that, you know, we have no idea who did or did not practice Karma Mudra in the Tibetan Buddhist world or Tantric Buddhist world, whether they're married or whether they're not married, because it's up to the individual. And if one, if one does not have the vow of uh, celibate restraint, in other words, if one isn't a monk or a nun, then one makes love in a natural course of one's life, then why Buddha's, Buddha's thinking is one should do so well, one should do so in a meditative way, one should incorporate it into one's spiritual life, into one's spiritual growth, and the whole, the whole training regime one is doing, it should be part and parcel of one's spiritual life, not a kind of an escapism from the drudgery of um, ordinary being or something like the humdrum of day-to-day day -day, uh, activities uh, or just as a kind of a exciting indulgence. But the essence of it, which is the connection with the eternal radiance of the soul, should be the key point. So whether it's done in generation stage yoga or in completion stage yoga, 
uh, generation needs their meaning with a lot of visualizations to supplement the practice. As in the case I mentioned of the seeing oneself as the deity and the lover as a Buddha form and the two as coming together uh, as a kind of eternal dance of male-female in harmony to touch the eternal radiance of the soul. If it's done as in Tantra, then coming to the orgasmic moment, retaining that great bliss and that great radiance, and utilizing that for one's, as Sankapa puts it in his commentary, for Mahamudra training, using that for one's Mahamudra engagement. So that's the different stage. And, and so once when someone was asked, well, if a monk doing, uh, one of my lamas who is a monk uh, was asked about it at one of the Karma Mudra teachings, and there they don't do it with description books, they teach in a kind of a very kind of a very ordinary way of teaching. They just sit down and talk about like the same as they were talking about Mahamudra or death meditation or precious human body or luck. It's just spoken about in a very casual way, not as anything that's sort of slightly titillating or any more exciting. Like there's, in the West, I think, because Christianity saw sex as something like very close to the devil, there's something almost like taboo about it as a subject, and therefore very exciting in the sense of a sin has pleasures which uh, virtues do not, something like that. And so that's without any of that kind of atmosphere being there, just as a kind of a casual discussion, that when you're making love, the energies go like this and this, and in your tumor practice they go like this and this, and you should notice that as those energies move, the same dissolution of the earth elements, you'll notice a heaviness in your arms as you're approaching a certain level, and then you'll notice the, the kind of the blood, the heartbeat sort of changes, a, a shift in heartbeat, and you'll notice a, a shift in bodily temperature, and you'll notice a shift in breathing, and so on and so forth, and then you'll notice a kind of a very immersive explosion of bliss. And of course, in Tantra, when practices Karma Mudra, both male and female hold the energy at that point. One reason why the female is considered superior uh, vehicle, the female body superior vehicle for enlightenment is because the orgasmic experience for the female is naturally internalized. In other words, it's the natural instinct of the female body to want to draw the male seed inside to procreate. And so the female body naturally pulls energy inside at the time of the orgasmic experience. And this, uh, in that tumo, is talking about reversing the drop and bringing it up through the four chakras and so on. Then this facilitates that to a great degree, whereas the male instinct is to uh, eject the seminal fluids so as to procreate. So a male has to essentially imitate the female in that regard and uh, reverse the flow of energies and um, retain the drop at the tip of the jewel, as it's often put, and draw them back inside the body. Therefore, the second Dalai Lama and his six yogas of Naropa, also his six yogas of Niguma, those two commentaries he wrote uh, to Tumo, he says there's two ways of practicing. 
one is in reliance upon one's own body, the other in reliance upon the body of another. And uh, in other words, through when one does retreat with a partner. And uh, he says, goes on to say, because this text is being written as a general teaching manual, not as a specific one, therefore I'm just going to address practicing uh, in reliance upon your own body. So in the, yeah, I think Buddha's idea of this was that everything we do in our life, from eating and going to the bathroom, from sleeping to being awake, and from making love to taking a rest after making love, all of these things should be tied to our spiritual life. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a problem is, is that sometimes, because our Western society is so fascinated by sexuality that it gets kind of taken out of context as some sort of indulgent or orgiastic sort of a situation. And it's really very low-key, I would say. I see. So you're, you're saying that part of the eroticism of sex from the Western point of view is in its illicit or transgressive nature. I think so, yeah. And that's not implied in this view on sex. Correct. Time of Buddha, for instance, you know, there's no idea of monogamy as a, as a kind of a lifestyle. There's no hint in any Buddhist sutra that monogamy is a desirable lifestyle over any other kind of sexual relationship as it is in the West. And I don't, there's no statement by Christ in that, although also, although the early Jewish tradition, of course, uh, wanted to have monogamy. So if, you know, you think your wife is non-monogamous, you can take her to the market and hit her on the head with a stone and invite other people to also hit her on the head with stones. <laughs> Isn't that to do to some degree with paternity and things like that? That's part of the monogamous trend, isn't it? I think, I think part of it is... Part of it to do with the male instinct to dominate and to be uh, alpha dog. And so, therefore, he would really prefer the wife to be a kind of a possession or females in his life to be a kind of a possession, an exclusive possession. So just like you wouldn't lend your horse to your neighbor lightly or you wouldn't lend your car to a friend lightly or you wouldn't lend your favorite guitar <laughs> Like Laurie lends me her Martin <laughs> when visiting in Ohio. So I think there's part of that comes into it with with the, the three Semitic religions, beginning with the Jews, and then coming from the Jews uh, into the Christians, and then later coming down to the Muslims. Those three Semitic religions are all based on that kind of possessiveness, uh, and and they're very male dominated in the sense that. The rules, regulations, and social structures are very much based upon um, sort of a male instinct. And that's okay. I'm not knocking that, but I'm just saying Tantra doesn't come from that tradition. And regarding the retaining of the drop, we're definitely now in territory that is, uh, I think, also in pop culture in a certain sense, and also drawn from other tantric systems, uh, this topic itself. You know, there are so many different approaches to that. Some advocate complete relaxation of the body. Others advocate a certain, you know, squeezing of the mullah band or something that there's, or certain 
breath sequences are performed or visualizations or even direct manipulation of the energy. Is there a particular way in which it's favored in this presentation of Karma Mudra? Well, as you know, Karma Mudra is a Sanskrit term and it's coming from Buddhism. So, you know, I, you know, I would only really directly address the practice as taught by the Buddha and transmitted through the Buddhist masters of India and then into Tibet. So if we look at other systems, uh, then in India, certainly various of the so-called Hindu schools or uh, non-Buddhist schools have their own approaches. And a lot of these things are, you know, as centuries pass and people have various experiences, the masters have various experiences, they may add or add certain factors or take out certain factors that they think help or take out some that they think don't have much, aren't of much benefit in that kind of a society. So, you know, the Buddhist texts talk about the 64 arts of love as being kind of important in that they can arouse the great bliss. And they talk about the necessity uh, so the necessity of being able to control the movement of the drops. So all Tibetan texts on Karma Mudra, you see the expression Sasamla Lepanna, when you arrive at the state of competence. In other words, when you're able to control the drops, when you're able to control the flow. And the flow is mostly controlled by means of the Lungbomba Chen, the vase breathing. Uh, so-called vase breathing or vase breathing as they call it in America <laughs> and by uh, the yantras that one practice at the beginning of six yogas so in that way one can control the energies quite well and in that the energies uh, and drops move together therefore it becomes quite easy to control the drops and the idea really I think is that as one approaches the peak experience and comes close to that touching the primordial timeless radiance of the soul the bliss factor becomes more intense one has to be able to ease into that rather slowly as Sankapa puts in his commentary even practicing by yourself in other words not on reliance on the body of another if you can't control the drops as they move, the white drop as it moves down from the crown, whether you're male or female, it's the same. Then certainly when it gets to the tip of the jewel and the end of the chakra nadi tunnel, if you will, you won't be able to control it. In other words, if you can't control from the beginning, it becomes the further you get into the process, the more difficult it becomes to suddenly grasp controls like you're driving along in a car and you keep control of the car steering wheel and the road conditions it's very easy but if you take your hands off the wheel fall asleep and you wake up and you're five turns into going uh, what do you call it spinning round and round what do you call that in cars if you're into <laughs> wheelies i think they used to call them wheelies my, my brother crashed 13 cars practicing doing that at high speeds when he was a young soldier. <laughs> uh, on the, uh, always went on 
leave from the base and uh, out drinking. <laughs> that didn't really. So anyway, if you consciously do it, you may be able to maintain control. But if you fall asleep at the wheel and you find yourself into your fourth or fifth spin around and you suddenly wake up, it becomes very difficult to regain control. And so that element is there, whether you're practicing just tumo by yourself manipulating the drops, because, of course, we often think, of course, with a partner, it's very easy to lose the drop, but it's almost as easy to lose it if you enter deeper states of tumo, kundalini, uh, just practicing on your meditation cushion, the same as in, you know, in sleep, people don't have a partner, but they dream of something sexual, and they, they release drops. So in that same way, uh, if you don't control from the beginning, then hard to control late in the process. So that is always said there. And you know, not only in India was this sort of a common practice, but of course in the Taoist uh, longevity yogas, it's very, very important practice. And in many uh, other tantric systems, the use of especially those based in India and China, the two main sort of Asian traditions that we we attribute to those countries, even though China wasn't China at the time and India wasn't India at the time, but in places in those two countries that were at that time not part of those two countries, <laughs> we can say. Uh, I think, you know, these tantric yogas really come out of Bengal and Orissa in India. So they're not really part of India. They're really part of Orissa and Bengal. And, of course, the Hindu systems don't really come from Arissa and Bengal. They're really carried in by the Aryans and developed in central India, the, you know, Varanasi area, really, Bihar and Mangada, what they call the central land. So when we say India, it's not like anyone outside of Bengal or Arissa in ancient times was very outside uh, but... Uh, anyway, these days we attribute to India and in China. Similarly, it's not like there were great numbers of Chinese people aware of these practices in ancient times, just the little parts on the eastern, the borders of what today is eastern Tibet and China. There seemed to have been a great uh, yogic and also a wellness aspect of using the sexual encounter for both spiritual transformation, and also health and well-being. Does Karma Mudra require two trained partners, or can one do one's own side of Karma Mudra with an untrained partner? Yeah, I think, you know, in the Buddhist world, we say, if you're making an offering, you, if you have the actual substance, you should make the actual substantial offering. For instance, if you're doing a tantric ceremony and it says it's very nice to have a plate of lapis lazuli dust on the altar during this because lapis lazuli is a favorite jewel of Vajrapani and there's a Vajrapani empowerment and so a plate of lapis lazuli dust from cut lazuli stones is a wonderful offering to make. If you don't have it, visualize, uh, take some other other powder and just stain it with some blue coloring. <laughs> so when they talk about mudras, uh, they talk about various kinds. And one is shinke, uh, born from place, 
In other words, the idea of certain kinds of peoples born at particular times and places just by uh, just by karmic coincidence are naturally qualified without any training. Then there's ukye, born from light, means, in my mind, that means because of karmic instincts from previous lives, they're naturally uh, appropriate. And the third is ngakye, which means born from mantra practice. In other words, actually trained in the same tradition, uh, trained and trained in the same tradition and so forth. So those, the, the tantric texts speak of those three types. And so only in the third of those is there a kind of a conscious, you know, discussion. Otherwise, you know, it's just uh, making love together like two humans do every night on earth. Many millions of humans uh, make love together and they don't always tell everything about everything they're doing. Like they don't say, well, you know, I'm doing this as part of a spiritual practice because I've decided that the way to benefit men is to make love to a bunch of them, to cheer them up because men look so drab and unhappy. And a woman could make love to someone thinking that. That guy looks very drab and unhappy, I'd better cheer him up or something bad could happen. Or she just may think, I think that's a handsome guy, or she may think, I think that guy looks rich, I'd like to, you know, be part of his wealth. I think I'll make love to him and maybe something nice will come out of it financially for me or job opportunity or whatever. I mean, you know, one of the wonderful things about sexuality, I think, is that, you know, it uh, it comes, it's motivated by, it's motivated by many factors. One doesn't have to bring all of them up at every encounter. Like, I'm sure those girls throwing themselves at Mick Jagger or Paul McCartney didn't say to him, you know, I'm here to have sex with you because you're rich and famous and I really just want to spend a night next door to wealth and fame. And I'm sure that was never said. So it's, I think it's the same in Karma Mudra. One depends on if the best, it's always said, is a qualified partner. That way, Nakya, the third of the three, is the best, but no. That's not always the situation, and it could be ukye or shinkye, someone born with karmic predispositions which are very strong, or someone born with great uh, inner radiance. So the, seven, the first Dalai Lama says something like that in his commentary to the <coughs> Karma Mudra as practice in the Kala Chakra tradition. Glenn, I'm noticing now we're coming up to almost two hours. You know, I think we might have to do a part three one day <laughs> because I'd, I'd love to talk about next time, you know, Poa, Drongjuk, um, and some various other things that beyond the six yogas. So maybe we'll do a part three one day. Right. And so, you know, I think just in conclusion, I think with a problem in the Tibetan world uh, for, for bringing Buddhism to the West, is that very often in the Tibetan world, people became monks or nuns as part of their spiritual training at age six or seven or eight or nine. And then they did a lot of other stuff, 
basically they learned to read and write and reading, writing and arithmetic. <laughs> and they learned memorizing prayers and all these kind of things. And they went through all sorts of stuff before doing Tantra. And so then Tantra was regarded as something for when they became older. So the problem in Lama's teaching in the West is sometimes too, they regard it like Westerners. We had to like slug away as kids for 10 years before we got to do the tantric stuff. I should make my disciples slug away for 10 years before they get to do tantra. There's kind of a let's get revenge on the Westerners kind of thing. For, <laughs> there's that kind of atmosphere is there. And I don't think it's appropriate. And, uh, I'm, you know, in Kalupa, for instance, um, usually it's one lama, one student uh, is, a, is the formula in that case. And even that lama, like, um, you know, any of the great Galupa Lamas teaching around the world, even if they've got a hundred or five hundred or a thousand students, they still tend to teach each student individually. So I think that in general public perception and in public teachings, this idea that one should do other stuff for 10 or 15 years before doing Tantra, before doing Tumo and so forth, I think it's a big obstacle to the proper way of doing Tantra in the modern world. You know, we don't have to, when we come to Buddhism in, in our 20s or 30s, we don't have to learn to read and write, and we don't have to <laughs> learn to pick up some cultural literacy and so on and so forth. So there's, that's, that's already gone. And I, I think the other thing is Tantra in the West has been promoted as something very exotic, almost erotic. And we people wanting to practice should understand Tantra is just noticing the natural ebb and flow of the energies and chemistry of body and mind in your normal daily life and using certain techniques or certain methodology or yoga, as we call it, to connect with those, because here in yoga meaning connecting to authentic, to the authentic, connecting to those authentic processes and to the way in which they bring enlightenment. So in particular in Tibetan, um, Marpa really termed his six yogas of Naropa as Sewa uh, Sumgi the yoga of connecting through blending. What does that mean? Noticing the natural radiance of your soul, the natural clear light nature, which you experience all times in little ways in your life, and always using that natural radiance as where you're coming from. So, so when you achieve enlightenment, your mind becomes Dharmakaya. So in from Dharmakaya, you emanate an emotional body and a thought body, which becomes Sambhogakaya. And then you emanate in the ordinary world, where ordinary beings can perceive you as in the form of humans or animals or other phenomena that do bring beings to enlightenment. So Marpa is saying, remember, the quintessential nature of your being is the natural radiance of your own, I don't like to say mind, because that means mind is something different than body, than your own santana, your own stream of being. That is your dharmakaya nature, that is the Buddha in you, and it's always with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, come out of what you're doing, manifest from within that natural radiance. When we manifest within the natural radiance, be like the Buddha, be like a Buddha, 
manifesting from the infinity of wisdom, manifesting with joy and spaciousness, Sambhogakaya, the bliss body of a Buddha, and manifesting as appropriate to all others based on compassion. So in other words, mix everything you do mentally, emotionally, intellectually, and also physically, blend as, see them as the three expressions of your natural Buddhahood, your Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. So whether you're eating, it's an act of Nirmanakaya. You're taking food, 10,000 people touched that food and processed it and carried it and sold it. As you're eating it, they connect through the joy of Nirmanakaya expression. The energy goes all the way back to the truck drivers and the people who built the roads and the people who grew and picked the food and so on. And when you go to the bathroom, you release it like a universal nectar that wherever it goes, may it turn into wonderful um, compost that brings up beautiful lotuses and flowers and so on. And uh, whenever you talk with someone through this connection, may I express my joy, may I express my sort of spaciousness and my radiance. And, and in that way, uh, that be the basis of my foundation of my relationship with that person and that person's relationship with me. And of course, coming down to Rope Lagi Najar, may I never do it with a sense of self-righteousness or religiosity, but with uh, the playfulness of a mischievous god or goddess. <laughs> so I'll end on that note, I think. Wonderful. Glenn, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Dave. Always wonderful to see you. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.